Oh, the temple in Jerusalem was truly something to behold. The size and the architecture, the priests and the vestments, the animals and the offerings, the smells and the bells. Yes, it was truly something to behold. Such a sight to behold was it, in fact, that it was quite easy on the day chronicled in today's gospel lesson for the gathered crowd there to overlook the divine glory that was being revealed right in their midst. Joseph, Mary, and Jesus were there at the temple that day, Luke's gospel explains, for the Jewish rite of purification where according to the law of Moses, they were to bring their firstborn son to the temple to present him to the Lord. And so they did. They brought him and they offered a sacrifice according to that which was required of them by Mosaic law, which was, quote, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So Luke explains in verse 22. Only here's what Luke quite charitably leaves out of this explanation. According to the Mosaic law, which can be found in Leviticus chapter 12, quote, When the days of purification are over, you are to bring a year-old lamb for an offering. But if you cannot afford a lamb, you are to bring two pigeons or two turtle doves. You catch that? Luke leaves out the fact that the reason Joseph and Mary offered two turtle doves at the temple that day was because they were too poor to present that which was required of anyone with means. In short, these were poor people making a very modest offering that day. People whose dress and language and mannerisms and everything signaled to the world their low socioeconomic station. And yet here they were amid all of that pomp and circumstance and grandeur. And so again I say it was quite easy for everyone gathered there that day to look right past the divine revelation in their midst. Early in my tenure in Kentucky, I was invited to offer the prayer at the local Rotary Club's annual Christmas event, which was held each year at a large downtown venue. I was new to town at the time, and I was honored to be invited, though I was unaware of what a production this annual event actually was, and I assume still is. The Rotary Club's biggest annual event, the club members, buttressed by enormous corporate donations, would buy gifts for all of those in the local community who were unable to provide presents for their children at Christmas time. It's a wonderful event. Well, I showed up that day expecting to see a few dozen families gathered there to receive presents. Perhaps maybe as many as 50. Well, suffice it to say, I was way off. The line that day quite literally stretched all the way from the front of a grand room 
out the front door and down the sidewalk and around the corner. There were easily hundreds of families on hand. And it was on this day, by the way, that I came to fully appreciate just how economically depressed much of rural Appalachia is. Well, I offered my prayer that day, and then I greeted a few families, at which point I was promptly ushered back to a different room where I mingled with various club members and their families, and with some local politicians and other city leaders, and with other local clergy and various other nonprofit executives. We had a wonderful time. Delicious finger foods were provided. Christmas music was playing, cheer was in the air, and I was awash in the joy and in the splendor of it all. All these fine people coming together to put on such a fine event. This, I left thinking to myself, this is what the Christmas season is all about. According to Luke's narrative, only two people gathered at the temple that day recognized who Jesus was. A man named Simeon and a woman named Anna. That's it. With presumably hundreds on hand that day, only these two recognized the Savior in their midst. There amid that size and splendor, those smells and those bells, only Simeon and Anna saw him. Everyone else presumably walked right past Joseph, Mary, and Jesus. Pleased with their own experience at the temple and content with their own offerings and absolutions. And can we blame them? Would not we have done the same? There's a scene in the classic film Hook, the Peter Pan movie starring Robin Williams, where Robin Williams, playing a grown-up Peter Pan who has forgotten everything about Neverland, finds himself back in Neverland and sitting down to a feast with the Lost Boys. And no sooner have the lost boys settled in to say grace and to receive their meal than they begin to devour the food that is spread out before them. And Williams, looking on, sees them aggressively exerting themselves, but all he sees are ludicrous pantomimes of eating because he can't see the food. Do y'all remember this? Well, it goes on this way for a long time until finally Williams' eyes are open to the food that has otherwise been there before him this whole time. You're doing it, Peter, the lost boys then say. You're doing it. You're using your imagination. I think about this scene a lot particularly when it comes to reflecting on gospel lessons like today's and on Jesus' parables concerning the kingdom of God. We so regularly fail to see Jesus in his kingdom, I often reflect to myself, 
And so much of the time, this is because we fail to properly use our imagination. Perhaps a better way to put what I mean is this. When we are looking for Jesus, and when we are looking for the kingdom of God, what is it that we are looking for? How pliable is our vision of what Jesus and of what God's kingdom looks like? How expansive is our kingdom imagination? I ask this because I don't think that all those gathered at the temple that long ago day failed in their attempt to encounter and to be encountered by God. Surely not. I mean, they'd all done what was asked of them. They'd shown up. They'd left their offerings. They'd prayed their prayers. They'd been all inspired in precisely the way that the whole temple tableau was constructed to elicit their all. They hadn't done a single thing wrong. They'd simply missed this most distinctive revelation of God's fullness... Because they, understandably, were so caught up looking for it in the places that they themselves expected to find it. Therefore, like a bunch of Robin Williamses, they looked right at the trio of Joseph, Mary, and Jesus, and they saw nothing. Only Simeon and Anna, according to Luke, had the imaginative vision to see in that seemingly lost boy in Mary's arms the divine glory that was indeed right there before them. Now make no mistake, all of them could have seen what Simeon and Anna saw if only the vision of what they were looking for had been a little more pliable. Which leads me back to that Christmas event so long ago in Kentucky. Later that same week, in preparation for my upcoming Christmas sermon, I read this story from Luke chapter 2. That is this story of Joseph, Mary, and Jesus coming to the temple and of Simeon and Anna recognizing who Jesus actually was. Well, as I read and prayed that week, and as I consulted my commentaries, and as I reflected on the significance of Joseph and Mary's offering, that is to say, on the fact that they offered two turtle doves as opposed to a lamb, as I did all of that, it suddenly dawned on me just how significant Jesus' social situation was to this otherwise very familiar story. In other words, I suddenly realized that it was not that Simeon and Anna were supplied with spiritual insight that was otherwise withheld from the rest of those gathered, as I'd once thought was the case. Instead, I realized that it was that Simeon and Anna had an imagination of divine revelation, of its possibilities that was more pliable and more expansive than the rest of those around them. Of course these others didn't see it, I realized that day, because their imaginations were too limited, were too constrained by their expectations, 
too confined. Only Simeon and Anna, both of whom, according to the Scripture, had been earnestly looking for and expecting such a divine revelation for a long, long time. Only these two had imagination sufficiently stretched that their imaginations were pliable enough, were expansive enough to see this divine revelation in such an unexpected place. This was a powerful insight for me. And so, impressed by this new insight, I began to wonder then, what would foreclose one's imagination against such possibility? Did it require a hardened heart? Did it require prejudice or bias or haughtiness of spirit on the part of those gathered that day at the temple? I was inclined to answer yes. But then suddenly the scales fell from my eyes. And suddenly I saw myself in that scene. And I saw myself in all of my earnestness and sincerity walking right past them there at the temple. For had I not been at that big, wonderful event a few days earlier... And had I not been taken with the grandeur and the grandiosity of it all in the same way that those at the temple that long ago day presumably were? Had I not been impressed by the status and the station of so many of those who attended? Had I not been impressed by the largesse that these kind people were displaying? Had I not been impressed with the scale and the sincerity of the entire production? And most important of all, was I not right in this assessment? My question to each, excuse me, my answer to each of these questions was a demonstrable yes. All of that was right. But then the real insight came. Even though the people putting on this event were doing an unequivocally good thing. And even though everyone involved was to be commended for what we were doing. It seems that one thing never crossed any of our minds amid it all. Which is that in this Christmas story. This Christmas story that we were quite literally reproducing with this event. In this Christmas story, Jesus would have been standing in line with the families waiting to receive presents. Not hanging out with us in the back room eating delicious finger foods. Which had never crossed my mind and I don't think anyone else's. That event feels like a lifetime ago now. But all these years later, whenever I read the story of Simeon and Anna, I picture not the crowds who overlooked Jesus that day at the temple, but I picture the crowd who swelled the VIP room that day in downtown Corbin, Kentucky. And I think of how I myself had had too limited of an imagination to see Jesus and to see God's kingdom anywhere other than in the places and in the spaces where I expected to see him. Even God help me at Christmas time. 
My eyes have seen your salvation, Simeon said, upon his unexpected recognition of Jesus that day. My eyes have seen your salvation. Well, all these years later, Simeon, and with him, Anna, all these years later, these remain models for us of the exercise of human imagination and for its capacity to render divine revelation visible. St. John himself, knowing the difficulty that we have with exercising such imagination as human beings, writes in his gospel's prologue, and I quote, He was in the world, and though the world was made by him, the world did not recognize him. Well, the world failed to recognize him, not because he didn't reveal himself clearly, but because he revealed himself in a way other than that which we were looking for and expecting. And what's more, and what's to the point of today's sermon, he continues to do the very same thing today. And so on this first Sunday after Christmas, let us then expand our imaginations that we might learn to see Jesus in places and in spaces that we'd otherwise never imagine him being. And then let us go to him in such places and spaces, wrapping him in our love and our embrace in the same way that Simeon and Anna did, trusting that if we do, then our eyes like theirs might thereby see his salvation, and knowing that our lives like theirs will thereby be forever changed on its account, and all God's people said, Amen. And I'll be down front now to receive any who might want to put